You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Body IO FM. This is your host, Kiefer, and co host, Rocky Patel. Hey there, Kiefer. Uh, just Quick call out to sponsors, well, sponsor, High Lead Athletic Gear. Um, I don't need to, I, I talk about them every show, just great stuff. Uh, everybody knows I hate sponsors, so if I'm willing to be sponsored by somebody, uh, that just says something about the people there and the quality of their stuff. Today, we've got Dr. Rhonda Patrick on our show, and I've been hounding her for weeks to try to get her on a podcast, but she's apparently just too popular and too good uh, for for my show. But I finally wrangled her, and uh, I'm gonna let her give her introductions. I had the great pleasure of uh, hanging out with her at Paleo FX, uh, so uh, I'm a little intimidated. Actually, I wouldn't normally admit that, but uh, Rhonda, why don't you <laughs> take it from there? Now that you know I'm intimidated Hi. by you. <laughs> uh- I'll use it to my advantage. Uh, it's nice to be here, Kiefer. Um, yeah, I, I am a little busy as I as I do full time research, clinical research at Children's Hospital Oakland Research Institute. That's with, like uh, the Dr. worst worst excuse ever. I mean, come on, we know we know how <laughs> yeah. how fluff and puff research is. I mean, that's come on, Rhonda. Right. I, <laughs> I I'm in the I'm in the process of getting a pub, another publication out. Um, oh. Hopefully, we're trying to submit it at the end of May. So. Uh, it's kind of a, a crunch time for me right now, and it is- uh, but it's, it's been, um, you know, like I, I, I got my PhD in 2012, um, at the university of Tennessee. And I did my graduate research at St. Jude children's research hospital, where I investigated the role of mitochondrial function and the coupling of mito- mitochondrial co- function to cancer metabolism and apoptosis. Um, and so, uh, that was, a Six years of my of my life there, looking at mitochondria at every possible level you could imagine, and uh, so I spent about six years not socializing with people, but instead socializing with mitochondria, all kinds of mitochondria. And before that, I I was at the Salk Institute for Biological Sciences, where I did aging research, uh, and I investigated the role of insulin signaling and how insulin signaling is involved in aging. Uh, particularly at the level of protein folding and misfolding, um, which is really relevant to neurodegenerative diseases. And now I'm here in Oakland at Children's Hospital Oakland Research Institute, where I am looking at, I'm doing clinical research, uh, investigating the role of micronutrient deficiencies and how those deficiencies can accelerate diseases of aging, particularly cancer. Uh, And I'm looking at things like DNA damage and the ability to repair that damage and how important uh, specific micronutrients are in that process. So in addition to that, I also have this platform, <laughs> Found My Fitness, where I try to communicate science and health and nutrition to the general public. Um, so there you go. Well, you know, if Kiefer's intimidated at this point in time, I don't know what I am because I am certainly the Neanderthal of the group here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rocky didn't even do any homework for this podcast. I was like all day yesterday, I was reading papers to make sure I could at least have an informative, engaging conversation with you. I was only admitting the patient <laughs> at 1130 at night at the hospital. That's all. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, like yesterday I was out uh, teaching my brother-in-law how to surf in like really, really, really cold water. So, you know, I, I'm not really prepared either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Then I feel better. And you were, you, you mentioned earlier, I accidentally talked over, but you work with Dr. Bruce Ames, who is somewhat, you know, somebody I have amazing respect for. And I just, it, it, you know, in my opinion, it's a shame that more guy, more people don't talk about his work and what he's done. And, you know, he's been looking at mitochondrial dysfunction, you know, for 40 years, talking about its relation to cancer. And and, um, it, and he's still not brought up in those discussions, which amazes me. So it's... Yeah, it, no. Yeah. Go ahead. He's, um, he's pretty well known for his uh, discovery of this Ames test, which is a really... Um, cheap and uh, easy way to identify mutagens, you know, and he's, mm-hmm. he's solely responsible for getting, there was mutagens that were in um, children's like flame, like uh, pajamas and blankets. They had these mm-hmm. flame retardant 
in there and they literally were carcinogens. And his test was responsible for pulling that off the shelves as well as a women's hair dye. Back in the 70s, women's hair dye had a very potent carcinogen in it and his test figured that out. So they pulled that off the shelves. So he, him, he is alone responsible for saving you know, millions of lives. And I just think that's oftentimes it's really hard to translate science into um, application, you know, ap- to make it immediately applicable. A lot of times there's like a 10 to 20 year lag and you know, and it often it's not immediately applicable, but he was, you know, it was his, his findings were immediately translated and just, it was just, to me, that's very impressive to make that difference. So he's, he's awesome. Is he, how is it working with him? I, I really enjoyed talking with him. I, I, I wish I could have done a live, like been able to sit with him and chat, but how is it working with him? Like great mentor? Uh, oh, absolutely. Side? By the way, you get major props for that. When you said that you interviewed Bruce Ames, I was like, okay, you're, you're up there. Uh, you know, I was, I was, I was impressed. Um, so he's, uh, he's very creative, uh, very, very sharp and smart. And, uh, we have, a you know, on a daily basis, a variety of different theoretical conversations where we're always, um, coming up with hypotheses and figuring out ways to test it. We do a lot of theoretical work in addition to our clinical work. So it's, it's so much fun. I really enjoy uh, working with him. He also really likes what I'm doing on the side with found my fitness. I, mm-hmm. I show him my YouTube videos and he's just, <laughs> he loves them. He's so into that. He wants to submit my YouTube videos to journals to, uh, for publication. Like he wants to start changing the way, you know, these, these journals, um, you know, w- the way we have publications and he wants to sort of get, you know, different media sources in there. And so it, he's just very creative. That's awesome. That, that would be amazing to have, you know, video journals. Right, right. <laughs> that would be, you know, and just if anything, to make it more palatable to a, a larger variety of people. You know, I know there's yeah. a lot of young people now getting interested in the research and the science now behind nutrition and fitness. But if if they're anything like I was, you know, the first time I cracked open a medical journal, I was like, what the hell are all these terms? Right. And you know, it took forever just to do the background work so that I could start to understand even the basic research and then move up from there. And that's massively time consuming. A lot of people just don't have the ability to do that. Yeah, that would be very, very cool. I mean, as a clinician, it's so difficult to kind of at least let alone keep up with the literature, read some of it. So that would be a very unique way of getting that information. Yeah. And you know, it's like it, the problem is, is that with science, we'll we'll publish something that's, you know, potentially a major breakthrough. And it gets, it gets lost in the literature because, you know, if the press doesn't pick it up, Scientists are so focused on what they're doing and the minutia of their, you know, hypothesis, the, the minutia of their experiments that they oftentimes miss it. And so here you have this great finding and it's just lost in the literature. You know, I'll give you an example. Um, Bruce, before I joined the lab uh, a few years ago, he, he and one of my colleagues uh, came up with this theory, which they call the triage theory. And they found evidence for this, this theory um, in the literature where, so the triage theory basically posits that uh, micronutrients, so micronutrients are essentially like 40 or so essential vitamins and minerals and essential fatty acids and amino acids that we need um, for a variety of different you know, physiological processes in our body. But the problem is that we're not getting enough of these micronutrients. And so they came up with this theory that there's a, a specific rationing of these vitamins and minerals that you know, go to proteins in our body that are essential to for survival right now. So, for example, vitamin K, um, you know, vitamin K's need for clotting. And so, you know, many, many people don't have enough vitamin K, but the vitamin K that they do get is going to go to these proteins in our body that's important mm-hmm. for clotting because you don't want to bleed out, right? You don't want to hemorrhage, die. So it makes sense. Okay, your body's, your body's smart. It's like, well, I'm going to take this vitamin K and I'm going to make sure it, that I, my, my blood is clotting. However, there's other proteins in your body that use vitamin K as a cofactor, which means it's essential for its function um, for uh, calcific- preventing calcification of the arteries. These are called matrix glial proteins. And those proteins, while very important to prevent calcification in the arteries, which prevents degenerative diseases like you know, arterial calcification, things you know, involved in vascular disease, um, cardiovascular you know, problems. I'm sure um, Rocky knows a lot more about that than I do. But the thing is, is that those proteins sort of get the short end because they're not essential for survival right now. They're, they're, they're essential for sh- survival, you know, 20 or 30 years right. later. 
body's like, well, I don't care about that. That's 20, 30 years. I, I want these proteins now so that I can reproduce, pass on my genes, and then that's pretty much what I need to do. So anyways, uh, this triage theory is really applicable to many different vitamins and minerals. Um, and really, it's something that we're trying to uh, get out into the public and, and prove uh, that people, even though you think you're getting enough micronutrients, um, you're not. You're actually getting enough to not have an acute clinical manifestation of some disease right now. But the reality is, is that these things, this insidious damage is happening, and it's going to cause diseases of aging later on. So, you know, that's something that I'm working on right now with uh, DNA damage. And if it's something you guys are interested in talking about, I can talk about the role of magnesium in that. And so um, I think it's a very interesting and it, it completely uh, intuitive uh, right. theory that is, yeah, that's something that should be well known. Um, so, yeah, we talked about that when I did the interview with him. I, and <clears throat> you're right. It just, it makes so much sense. And that's what really, you know, it, if, if you understand that and you realize that the, the body does have these preservation mechanisms, which is really what it is, you know, they're, like you said, they're preserving the nutrients for the most vital functions in the moment and it, right. ignoring things that aren't so vital in the moment. And, you know, when you're young, when you're young, you can get away with so much stuff because your body's, you know, more adaptive, you know, has all these, uh, you, you probably do have a little more a source of micronutrients in your diet because you're eating more and you know you don't you don't think about what's going to happen 10 20 30 years later i mean when i was 20 years old i didn't even care if i made it to 40 let alone worrying about what was going to be going on inside of my body at 40 and so right you know people just it's it's hard to get that message to the population that matters most I think the other issue would be just the to add insult to injury is that current recommendations from whatever society you want to pick tends to make these things these issues worse. So, like for vitamin K, for example, you know that's essential for um, bone metabolism, right? In addition to right, right. calcifications in the arteries. So, you know, I see from a clinician standpoint, I see so many um, Caucasian women that have osteopenia and osteoporosis. Um, and they're also uh -huh. following their low fat diet. So they're going to have less K and, 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 and that, that vicious cycle rolls less on. D. Yeah. Less D of course. Do that yeah. Too. Right. You know, it's, uh, it, I think, and as Kiefer pointed out, getting this information to the 20 something, you know, the early 30 something population where it's like, okay, we're talking about prevention, prevention of falling apart, mm -hmm. you know, preventing yourself deteriorating at a rapid level. Like, like, you know, that is difficult because you know what, when you're 20 something, you're not deteriorating. So right. you're not thinking about that. So, you know, it's not until you actually start to fall apart when it's too late <laughs> that you start right. to think about it. So, um, you know, if we could get this concept out to the public that, you know, the, the reality is, is that you need micronutrients, um, to, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of physiological process and enzymes and proteins in your body doing all sorts of things at once. And these enzymes and proteins require magnesium, zinc, iron, B vitamins. You know, they require these things as cofactors to function. And if you don't give them these cofactors, they're not going to function, you know, properly. And, and over time, it just gets worse and worse and worse because everything falls apart when we age. And so, you know, not having a cofactor is even more, um, you know, devastating in, in, in a sense. So it, it, it's, it's something that it, people don't focus on. People like to focus on a lot of macronutrients, what you shouldn't be eating, mm -hmm. you know, what you, not eating processed food, not eating, you know, all these things, or making sure you're getting, you know, enough protein. And, and that's all fine. You know, I think that people have focused on that and there's, you know, that there's no shortage of understanding, you know, the importance of macronutrients and, and getting certain ones and not getting certain ones in your diet. But I think what needs to have more focus um, is on micronutrients and what you need to get from your diet. Um, these micronutrients that you're, you're essentially missing. So, so this is a um, great segue. I'm going to cut you off a little bit <laughs> because this is a yeah, great sure. segue into your YouTube video that I watched, uh, where you just trashed the review article about how vitamins are dangerous. We shouldn't be supplementing with multivitamins. Um, get, let's yes. like, what is your, you know, my take on multivitamins is, you know, I tell people they should find a good multivitamin. I recommend one or two, but 
there's nothing wrong with taking a multivitamin. It actually can be extremely helpful. Uh, you obviously don't want to go overboard, but uh, and, yes. and then there's this big movement. It's like, oh, no, vitamins are artificial. You, know, you shouldn't have put anything artificial into your body. And, and then a review paper comes out that says, oh, using multivitamins might be dangerous. Um, and right. Yeah. And it, it does like I loved your YouTube video because it does what I talk about. Uh, you you addressed what I talk about all the time, and that's that context is everything in this research literature. So, you know, why don't you give us your opinion on vitamins, uh, supplementing with multivitamins and maybe talk about uh, that review article a little bit? Sure. Um, yes. Context is everything. And, and I absolutely point that out in this paper. So um, the reality is, is that, you know, there are a lot of multivitamins that are available on the shelf and many of them don't have very adequate levels of certain micronutrients. And you really do have to search for, for a good multivitamin. And that, you know, that's the bottom line. But that wasn't the point of this paper. The point of this paper was, um, it, was a, it was a huge, this was a sensational grab, basically, editorial, where they took three papers that were published in the Annals of Internal Medicine and um, one of them was a very large meta-analysis, which included like 30 or so studies, where they looked at, you know, what, what effects different either multivitamins had or specific micronutrients like vitamin E or folic acid or um, beta carotene. They were giving, uh, you know, specific micronutrients to a population um, and trying to see what the effects were. And so here's, here's the, the bottom line. The bottom line is that, first of all, if you look at NHANES reports, which is like the, the gold standard for looking at, um, you know, how, how much micronutrients the U.S. population is getting, if people are getting adequate levels, 96% um, of the population that does not take a vitamin D supplement is deficient in vitamin D. 70% of the U.S. population, if you just look at people that are, are and are not taking supplements, do not have enough vitamin D. 48% are, are not getting enough vitamin C. 96% are not getting enough vitamin E and 50, 58% are not getting enough vitamin A. So we're talking about some serious nutritional gaps here that multivitamins have been shown to fill. The people that take, you know, so for example, I said 96% of people that do not take vitamin E supplement are deficient in vitamin E, whereas 5% of the population that takes a vitamin E supplement is deficient. So that's filling a gap there, I'd say, you know, about 90% yeah. of it. So um, that, but that's, that's not the point of the paper. The point of the paper was that there may be not only no effect of multivitamins or vitamin supplementation, there actually could be a negative effect. Um, and the reality is, is that um, that's true, but like you said, context is important. So um, some, of, some of the problems with these studies were that they, they took uh, populations of people and they gave them a multivitamin for a certain amount of years. And then they looked at a clinical outcome like, you know, cardiovascular events or, you know, you know, some sort of cardiovascular event or, you know, cognitive function. So these are, you know, these are things that you can't biochemically quantitate. You know, they're not, it's not, a, there's no biomarker that you're looking at to see, you know, this is a, this is a clinical outcome. And, you, you know, if you're giving someone a multivitamin, you have to find a biomarker, let's, let's say vitamin C or vitamin A, something that you're measuring to see that if you're giving them this full-time multivitamin, that they're, you're raising their levels of a particular micronutrient, A, to see if they're compliant, B, to see if they're getting an adequate level of that vitamin. And the majority of those studies did not do that. So when you have negative results and you don't have, you haven't quantified any sort of uh, biomarker, you can't, you can't say, make a conclusion from it. I mean, that's just, that's science. That's the first thing I learned when I did an experiment you know, negative results are, are difficult to interpret. And, and if you have no quantitative data there, it's even more difficult. So you can't make a conclusion, you know, if you haven't quantitated, especially particularly with nutrition, if you haven't quantitated any uh, micronutrient in, in, the, in the serum to say, look, this person took the vitamin or we gave them an adequate dose. All right. That said, I mean, that's, that's a very important methodological, common methodological right. error that was, you know, within those papers. Now, here's the other thing. Uh, they were giving certain micronutrients to people that were in a diseased state. So, for example, they were giving folic acid um, to people that had, had previously had uh, cancer and were, you know, in remission. So they were giving these people that had previously had cancer folic acid. That's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea because 
and this is where understanding mechanisms is really important. And, you know, a lot of, you know, like, like Rocky said, a lot of clinicians, these people are very busy. They're doing clinical work. It's hard for them to uh, keep up with the scientific literature. A lot of, you know, a lot of these people are, are not really um, diving into mechanisms, you know, as much. And it's, it's not that it's their fault. They're, they are, you know, extremely busy. So you have these MDs and epidemiologists publishing these papers and it's like, without understanding a mechanism, mm-hmm. you're, you're really doing a terrible service here because um, folic, folic acid is essential to make thymine, which is a, a nucleotide in your DNA, okay? And cancer cells rapidly are proliferating and replicating themselves. I mean, that's their goal. Their one goal is to propagate. They want to take over and they do a really good job of it. But in order to, to propagate, they need... Um, substrates for you know DNA DNA synthesis for protein synthesis for lipid synthesis um, you know they're they're making new cell membranes they're making new DNA you know they, so they need they need sources to to generate the, these things and so folate folic acid because you know in your body folate is required to make thymine they love it because it's giving them fuel to make new cells. So giving someone that has cancer folic acid will in- indeed uh, accelerate the growth of cancer cells. In fact, one of the, you know, dating back decades, one of the, you know, classical chemotherapeutic agents is called methotrexate. And methotrexate um, inhibits folic acid synthesis yeah. in the body. So, you know, and uh, the mechanism here is, okay, folic acid can accelerate cancer growth. But the alternative, the uh, contrast is also true because folate, and I'm saying folate and folic acid, folic acid is the oxidized form that people usually take as a vitamin. Um, Mm. they, because, because folate is required for thymine, uh, thymine, we, we need it. And if you don't, if people don't get enough of it, what happens is it'll cause a break in your DNA because, uh, your body try, tries to, um, It'll, it'll actually replace your uh, uracil for thymine. So uracil is the RNA version um, of, of thymine, basically. Mm-hmm. And what happens is you'll end up getting a strand break in your DNA. And you keep getting these strand breaks. What ends up happening is eventually you get a mutation um, in your DNA. And after, after so many times of getting these mutations, eventually you'll get it in a gene that's important to, you know, for apoptosis or it's important mm-hmm. for cell cycle arrest. These are called tumor suppressor genes. And when that happens, then you're very likely to get cancer because now your, your signaling pathways that you have in place to keep cancer cells in check and prevent them from growing is not working. So not having enough folate in your body also causes cancer, but that's in people that don't already have cancer. So, you know, it's like, yes, you need, fo- you need folate to not get cancer. But if you already have cancer, you can't take a bunch of folic acid and think that's going to make you better. Um, and so this is a, this is a, you know, a great example of context where I think these, these scientists, these physicians, these epidemiologists had a, a perfect, um, opportunity to educate the public and say, look, vitamins, you need micronutrients to prevent cancer. You need things like folate to prevent cancer. But if you already have cancer, you can't take, you can't take large doses of folic acid and here's why, but they didn't do that. What they did was they made a big generalization and said, no, not only do vitamins not work, they're bad for you. Well, that's not true. They're bad. Folic acid's bad for you if you have cancer. Right. You know, so it was so frustrating for me. And, and, and there was <laughs> another example of this context. Um, and you really nailed it, Kiefer, when you said context is important because it really, really is. Um, people that are smokers that have, you know, a lot of oxidative damage in their lungs, mm-hmm. these people... They've got, you know, their lungs aren't like people like me or you that don't smoke. I mean, they've got a totally different microenvironment in their lungs. So when they take um, high doses of beta carotene, beta, there's a, a, a various different forms of pre, uh, pre, pre-vitamin A, basically. Um, vitamin A gets converted into retinoic oh. acid, which, which regulates gene transcription. So um, beta carotene is one of those, pre, you know, forms of vitamin A. Um, what happens is when they take large doses of vitamin A, because their lungs have all this oxidative damage, their lungs end up cleaving beta carotene and forming these oxidative like cleavage products, which then damage their DNA further. Damaged DNA can cause mutations. So one of the, what ends up happening is it actually can accelerate 
the um, possibility of getting cancer through causing more DNA damage. But that's not true in people that don't smoke. People that don't smoke take the same doses of beta carotene. That does not happen. Um, and that's so understanding the mechanism behind how, you know, oxidative damage can cleave beta carotene and accelerate damage to your DNA, which then can cause mutations, you know, is really important. And it's really important to educate the public. You know, I had, I, I talked about this at Paleo FX and I had a smoker come up to me and talk to me afterwards. And he was like, I had no idea I'm taking, I'm taking these vitamins and, you know, and it's like, well, I told him, I said, look, you're, you're, he, he had, I guess he had quit smoking, but he had been a pack a day smoker for a, a couple of decades, which means his lungs are definitely not in good condition. So it's like, you know, you can't, you can't take high doses of vitamin A and here's why. But, you know, it's so frustrating to me as a scientist, as someone who, who to me, mechanism is so important. If you don't understand the mechanism, you don't, you're, you're playing your guesswork. You're like, it's like, it's like correlative data. Well, this happened and this happened. So this must be why. And it's like, no, if you don't know the mechanism, then you're, you're just guessworking and you're going to make generalizations and you're not going to, you're going to end up, you know, not educating the public, but you're going to actually do more harm. So I'm trying to, you know, just get the truth out there because some of these people have just been uh, really making these generalizations that are not true and, uh, you know, basically uneducating the public. Yeah. So, and, and what's, what was kind of interesting to me about your video is, of course, we see this all the time in the everyday world. Somebody does some crazy thing and they lose 20 pounds or 30 pounds and like, oh, I found the miracle diet, just eat grapefruit all the time. And there's, you know, grapefruit has these magic properties. And it's like, you know, that wasn't it at all. So you kind of expect that yeah. in the social world and the, the public at large. But when you start talking about uh, professionals publishing these papers and what I would say is like getting it wrong, it, mm-hmm. that gets even scarier because these are our authorities or perceived right. authorities. And you know, now all of a sudden at a, at a high level, level of authority, you can be like, well, look, I told you vitamins were poisonous. Don't take them anymore. Um, it, it makes know, it even worse. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying. As a, as a PhD, you know, researcher, when I see this, when I see stuff like this published and I'm like, first of all, I mean, I learned about this mechanism of folic acid and, you know, cancer. Like, I don't even know, like my first cancer biology class I ever took. It's like, come on people, what's wrong with you? Are you really that, you know, busy that you can't take time to even, it, it just, it was, it was mind blowing to me that they, they didn't even bring that up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, I yeah. almost felt like, is this really, am I really reading this? Are these, this is like basic <laughs> cancer research here. What is, what's going on? So, um, I don't, at that point, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but at that point I was kind of like, trying to see who was funding this research. I'm like, there's gotta be some explanation. People yeah. just can't be that stupid, you know? Yeah. But, but you know, you know. It, it doesn't matter the type of research or the subject, even in physics. I mean, people carried their personal biases way too far and they would go down roads or publish work and make some very dubious conclusions and correlations that really, you know, anybody just, and it's a little different, but there were fundamental mechanisms there. And, you know, it, at the level that I was doing stuff is theoretical physics. I mean, they were kind of mathematical limitations, but it was just like everybody just waved right. their hand and they're like, oh, no, you know, that that's something we can figure out later. It's like, wait, you can't figure it out later because we already know something. We know something that means that's incredibly unlikely. Um, yeah. And, and it was just their own personal bias because that's that's the idea they came up with and they just hold on to it. And it, it's not yeah. always... Yeah, it's not always this conspiracy theory like people think. I mean, sometimes it is. I remember there was a study how chocolate makes you live longer, blah, 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 good for heart health. And it was funded by the American Council for Chocolate Manufacturing or something. I mean, it was ridiculous. It's like, okay, that one's pretty obvious. But, you know, it's just everybody carries around their personal biases. And that's and it's hard not to after a while. Like, I'm just. I've read so much, it would be hard to, I, I've got a very strong bias that, you know, all the glucose and all the insulin that it triggers in the standard American diet is, you know, 90% of all the diseases that we see. And even when I see research now that might cast even the slightest doubt on that, 
I just start digging in the background and more mechanisms and what, what else could explain what we just saw. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's now my bias, my somewhat of my own personal bias driving that, but I am at least willing to look and say, okay, is there a plausible explanation for this in the mechanisms I do understand and in the pathologies I understand, or am I going a little too far and just trying to knock this down? And I, I think most people just don't even go to that level. It's just like, Oh no, that's, that's stupid. That that's not applicable for X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Well, see, that's the thing is, is that even if you have, you know, a very strong belief and there's, and you understand the fundamental mechanisms and it's more than a belief, it's actually, there's been, you know, it's been the mechanistically proven. Um, and there's something else that comes out that kind of is a little conflicting. It's not, you know, it's not always black and white. It's not always, well, oh, it can't be true because this is true. And we know mm -hmm. this is true. Uh, the reality is, is that there are sometimes trade-offs. There are sometimes mechanisms that, um, other things that are happening that we don't quite understand how it relates. But you know, these systems are very complex, and so it's not it's not always a, a black and white situation where it's like, well, if this if this mechanism is true, then this other one that I understand to be true can't be true. Well, that's not always the right. case. But people, people, you know, they really think that it has to be. So um, that's. I, you know, I completely understand, yeah. you know, where you're coming from with that. And, and there are a lot of biases in, in science. And in, I mean, I mean, that's just human nature. You know, people have their beliefs, they have their uh, things that they believe to be true and understand things, things they think they understand, whether they really do or not, you know, um, and they'll, they'll cherry pick certain you know, right. facts to support it. Right. And, and that is absolutely a problem. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's interesting if you are willing to just dig in and try to defend your position, I mean, if you're willing to go down the rabbit hole, man, you get such an incredible understanding of so many different things. And it starts to not become so conflicting is what I found. You know, when right. you look right. at one study, it's, it's like, oh, well, actually, we can explain exactly what's going on. And again, that's where context comes into it. You know, I read so many studies that make these conclusions and they're based on a mixed diet, even though they'll say it's high fat, it's still a, you know, a highly mixed diet. And there's still a large carbohydrate load. So we have to mm -hmm. take into consideration how that's changed the internal environment. And it's very different from an internal environment where carbohydrates are almost never introduced. And I think that is, that is massively lost. And we can use this yeah. as our, uh, our uh, platform to, to move into insulin and mitochondrial damage. I was, man, I definitely went down the rabbit hole last night looking at stuff. Um, so w what I, you know, some, some of the things that I, um, may or may or may not be right about is, you know, uh -huh. it, it looks like it's really an interplay of glucose with, with insulin. That is the major problem. And you know, this, this is where I could be wrong, but I was looking at oxidative pathways of both glucose and fatty acids and you know mm -hmm. glucose has got to get down to the pyruvate level and i'm going to bring yep. this around to brain brain health later and that pathway to get glucose you know to pyruvate actually causes quite a few of oxygen species whereas if you look at the fatty acid you get very very few uh, reactive oxygen species and then you know, basically that was going into like how concentration of reactive oxygen species, you know, I'm, I'm always the first to say, look, those are important for a lot of mechanisms in the body. They're, they're critical that they occur. But when you get an oversaturation is when you start to see the bad effects start to happen. And that was my talk on hormesis basically was kind of effects uh -huh. like that. So uh, this is a good, good point to transition into mitochondrial damage and you know how how insulin relates to that we we might unfortunately have to skip protein folding even though that one's close <laughs> to my heart because the physics behind protein folding in biological <laughs> right. systems is amazing i mean it's 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 really complex and really fascinating but you know so let's just let's start at maybe a little higher level uh, outside of the protein folding and and unfolding and then and misfolding and look at how insulin can affect certain processes and glucose in particular accompanying insulin uh, with mitochondrial function. Sure. Yeah. So if, I mean, if you're up for that. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I, I know a lot about mitochondrial function and dysfunction now in terms of the role of insulin, 
in mitochondrial function. I mean, it, we're talking about insulin inducing glucose to be taken up mm -hmm. into the cell. Right. I mean, from my understanding, that that so if you're talking about you know that's important. You know, you need an insulin response to take up the glucose, and then the glucose you know gets converted into pyruvate, gets imported into the mitochondria, and then is substrate for the Krebs cycle. Mm -hmm. Produces electron reducing equivalents, right. basically necessary to you know, uh, couple oxygen to ATP production. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, now if we're talking about someone that doesn't respond to insulin, you know, that then what happens is you end up getting, you know, glucose sitting around and you get these advanced glycation end products, which mm -hmm. then damage lipids and they damage DNA and they damage proteins. Um, well, so I, what, what I was thinking, are you? well, yeah, I was thinking kind of in regards. So, you know, it, it seems like the, the perfect storm when, because insulin also mediates a lot of um, what I would say anti-catabolic effects. So, for example, upregulation oh, yeah, right. of mTOR in the cell, which, you know, if we have these reactive oxygen species and they can cause some mitochondrial damage. Um, and I even looked at the dynamics of mitochondria. I didn't know this till last night, how they'll fuse and they'll go through fission yep. and they'll actually yep. cut off I, part I, of them. I published on this. Oh, did you? Um, yeah, I published my grad, my grad, uh, graduate work. I published a paper in Nature Cell Biology on a big part of it was the mechanism was fission and fusion, and I did all this. I put, I made these mitochondria fluoresce with a mm -hmm. green fluorescent protein, and I would like visualize them and show mitochondria in real time doing it. It's really cool. I have these awesome videos oh, where I can I can see. Yeah, and then well, amazing. and then I'll like genetically screw them up so that mm -hmm. it doesn't work properly, and it's like you can see how they don't fuse. But mm -hmm. anyways, mitochondria are very dynamic. Yeah, and um, so what yeah, I was so. one thing I was reading in the mechanism there is you know when sometimes when they're fused, if part of it becomes dysfunctional or or something's wrong, you know it'll go through a fission process, and then that is expected that damaged part is expected to basically get cleaned up, and that's where the autophagy comes in. But with too much insulin signaling, we've turned off or really highly downregulated autophagy. So, uh, you know, what we've got there is the perfect storm of too much glucose can incite some sort of dysfunction. It may not be terminal at this point, but it's it's caused some dysfunction and the mitochondria tries to uh, adjust to get rid of that dysfunction. But then the mechanisms downstream to take care of that have been downregulated. So we get an accumulation basically of sick mitochondria. Uh, that are causing even greater and greater problems and and now uh, anyway I won't won't get into it too yeah. much uh so yeah. so that's where I see it's kind of an interplay between glucose causing a buildup of things that could cause dysfunction but also insulin being present to turn off the catabolic processes that could be beneficial in keeping that cell healthy so I, I kind of saw the two working together as like this perfect storm of how to make somebody sick yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you're, if you're talking about someone that's chronically, you know, eating a lot of this, you know, glucose and sugar and, you know, constantly having this insulin response, then you are, you're talking about activating uh, signaling pathways like AKT and, mm -hmm. and mTOR and these, these signaling pathways that um, are, you know, anti-catabolic. And, um, you know, in a sense, you're, if you do end up having things that are like, protein damage and things like that, you want to, you want to be able to degrade them. You don't want mm -hmm. them sitting around, right. you know, in your, in your cells because they end up becoming toxic. So, um, and, and, you know, in, in a sense, if you're, if you constantly are, are shutting on AKT, well then AMPK, like you said, you know, right. is not, that signaling pathway is not being activated. Okay. So what ends up happening is, yeah, your mitochondria, um, if, let's, let's say what happens is you're, you're actually accumulating more reactive oxygen species. So, you know, everyone makes reactive oxygen species. We're mm -hmm. making it right now. That's just mm -hmm. part of normal metabolism. And, and so you, your, your mitochondria, um, the DNA is very, very um, susceptible to getting damaged because it's very close to the mitochondria, obviously. It's mm -hmm. in the mitochondria. And so it gets damaged. Um, it also damages mitochondrial proteins and these things. So what ends up happening is, um, as you mentioned, the fission and fission and how that comes in play is that mitochondria will fuse together with other mitochondria and the unhealthy one will literally exchange all its mitochondrial content, its DNA, proteins, lipids, and then it'll fizz back apart. So what happens is you have one unhealthy mitochondria and one healthy fused together, exchange contents, fizz back apart. Now you have two healthy mitochondria. 
And this is an awesome mechanism that we have in our body to maintain our mitochondrial health, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you start to screw up signaling pathways where that's important for that, you know, that to happen, then you end up not being able to do that. And so what ends up happening is you start to get an accumulation of more and more and more and more damaged mitochondria. So, you know, if you're constantly turning on, you know, AKT signaling, you're constantly turning on this mTOR signaling and all this, then, you know, these other signaling pathways that are important for that process aren't being activated and you're, you're going to start to accumulate more and more damaged mitochondria. And then what happens is when you have more and more damaged mitochondria, it's a feedback, your metabolism is gonna, isn't going to work as properly, right. you know, as good. And now you're going to make even more reactive oxygen species. And it's like a vicious cycle. Right. So in that regards, yes, that, that, that can absolutely lead to mitochondrial dysfunction. Now, this isn't going to happen like in one year. I mean, right. it's going to you know, happen over time. And what's going to end up happening is it's going to rear its ugly head uh, as a disease of aging, such as neurodegenerative disease. You know, because what happened, you know, your, your, your brain cells, what happens is they, they actually require, they use uh, glucose as an energy source um, mm -hmm. for the most part. Um, and so when your mitochondria aren't working properly, and if they're not fizzing and fusing, they can't travel down the long axon to get to the synaptic, you know, cleft where they're needed, mostly needed to generate ATP for neurotransmission. I mean, that's the huge, huge energy demand. And studies have shown that if you disrupt the ability of these mitochondria to fizz and fuse by, you know, disrupting these signaling pathways. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, ha having too much insulin signaling pathway and activating AKT and activating all those pathways can disrupt that. And what ends up happening is your mitochondria can't travel down the axon as efficiently. So actually the mm -hmm. fusion of mitochondria is important to make a big network, almost like a huge matrix mm -hmm. where they're just like extend out and they can travel easier. So they, they can't do that. And what ends up happening is you can't get the mitochondria to that synaptic cleft where they need to be to generate the energy that's needed for neurotransmission. And so you end up getting brain dysfunction. And then there's a bunch of other things that end up happening. You start to neuronal cell death starts to happen. You, right. you know, if you're not making enough energy, apoptosis starts to occur and it's just a whole cycle of bad. And so let's, let's think about this for a minute. Of course, you know, I should have made that clear. This isn't something that's going to happen overnight. This is going to take years to build up to where you get a ca right. catastrophic event, which would say, let's say is cancer. And now think about the standard American diet and the direction we've gone by not looking at these mechanisms at, oh, what I would say, this is why I always talk about a biologically or physiologically based approach to diet versus um, a scientific approach where you look at science at a very high level and you make extrapolations instead of saying, okay, is this going to work with how we know for a fact cells work? So we've got this recommendation, A, you know, eat a lot of carbs in the U.S. That's a large part of the, the new, what is it called? The meal, the plate, yes, the, the, plate. The, the food plate, food pyramid, whatever. And then on top of that, yeah. And, and then on top of that, we have people looking at studies and saying, oh, well, if you go for more than a couple hours without food, your body goes into starvation mode and then you start storing a bunch of calories and you get fat and that's why people are fat. So what we need to do is make sure that you eat multiple times per day, preferably six to eight, and those meals should all have carbohydrates. So, so what are we doing? We're, we're doing exactly the process that, you know, what I, what I called the perfect storm, we're introducing glucose and we're introducing higher levels of insulin continuously through the day and that's going to have some serious consequences and they're not short term enough for people to pay attention to them or to even explore what those consequences could be and you know that's that's to me the difference between what I try to do like understanding at the cellular level up instead of looking at oh well you know here's these broad theories and we've got a little bit of science to support them so I'm going to base an entire dieting paradigm an entire dietary recommendation for a country on these kind of higher level things that don't match up with what we know for a fact goes on in cellular metabolism. So it, it's, yeah, that sounds ridiculous. I know. Doesn't I, it? I, I didn't even know that was a recommendation. That's, are you, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of mind, my mind's blown right now. So, uh, having a constant stream of insulin signaling throughout the day, uh, <laughs> chronically over the course that this, the difference is, Short-term effects versus long-term effects, mm -hmm. and you know what? Someone that does that, and if they're if they are, you know, trying to build muscle and they are they are working right. out, which is good. 
they're going to pack on muscle because, you know, right. insulin glucose uptake from, you know, insulin response is absolutely anti-catabolic. And, you know, so you will, you will pack on more, more muscle, skeletal muscle. But if you're going to keep on, you know, eating carbs and, and insulin throughout, you know, having an insulin response throughout the day for the next 10 years, you absolutely are going to cause damage, you know, at the cellular level, molecular level, even that's going to, you know, end up causing diseases of aging. And that's the problem. Long-term effects, people, you're, yeah. we're not measuring these because people aren't doing 10, 15 year studies looking at, you know, the effect of eating carbohydrates six times a day. I mean, right. that would be an incredible study to have to do, but uh, the reality is, is that we've done a lot of studies similar to that in lower organisms and also in rodents. Mm -hmm. And having a constant in insulin sig signaling will absolutely age you uh, yeah. through a variety of different mechanisms, one, one of which we just discussed, mitochondrial mm -hmm. dysfunction. So uh, that, that sounds kind of ridiculous. It is. And yeah. if you go into like, I hate to admit it, but I worked at 24 Hour Fitness as a trainer for like two months. And my thought was if I got into a huge organization like this that had so many members, I could make changes to a lot of people's lives quickly. But, you know, obviously that doesn't work that way in, in that business. But they would make everybody sit down and do this meal planning software, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter what their goal was. If their goal was trying to add body mass, lean mass, trying to get muscular, whatever, or trying to lose weight, the program always spit out the same diet, six meals per day. And most of those meals were meal replacement that were high in carbohydrates. And this is, you know, this is what, I mean, 24-Hour Fitness has millions of members and this is what they're telling them they need to do. And it gives them the license like, okay, you know, I'm going to have breakfast. I'm going to have my low-fat scone and coffee at Starbucks. And then I'm going to get a little hungry maybe around 9 or 10 o'clock. So I'll go ahead and have a high-protein Snickers bar. And then I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to do this. And... You know, and then they eventually, they don't realize even at a high level, like you program your hunger hormone ghrelin to match that schedule every day. So now every day, even though you forced yourself into it to begin with, you're forcing yourself to be hungry, whether you're introducing food or not. So you've yeah. created this vicious cycle where you're dependent on having this insulin secretion and this glucose load multiple times per day. And it's it just, it blows my mind. It's at this point, with everything that I've learned and what I know and what I've seen and people I've worked with, you know, I feel like it's irresponsible to make these kind of recommendations. You know, you can't look at a bodybuilder and I body, you know, I used to bodybuild. I did everything possible to get my body weight up to 270 of lean mass. And I was, I was eating, well, actually, I was probably eating more like 12 times per day because I would get up in the middle of the night to get more calories, which might have been somewhat stupid, but you know, I had to eat a lot of food and I eat it constantly, but I don't do that anymore. You know, I did that for a short period of my life. And yet I see people trying to force themselves into eating multiple times per day. And so they grab a bagel. It's just like, oh my gosh, it's so frustrating and annoying. Uh, it's, it's just gotten to me to, to the point of being asinine. The recommendations we make at a high level with what we know at a very, very base level. Yeah, and if you think about it, not even not <clears throat> excuse me, not only are they having a constant constant insulin, you know, response and activating all these pathways for insulin signaling, I mean, we haven't even talked about, you know, cancer and all that. Right. But in addition to that, if they're eating, you know, these carbohydrates and bagels and Snickers and all this, I mean, think about how deficient they are in micronutrients. Right. <laughs> I right. mean, we're talking about we're talking <laughs> about multifunction dysfunction you know, at the cellular level where it's like you're, you're, you're constantly having AKT activated, you're constantly mTOR, constantly boom, boom, boom. And all these different enzymes that are important to repair the damage that you're doing by constantly activating those signaling pathways, you can't do right. because you don't have the micronutrients to do it. So it's like, it's like a double whammy. I mean, people, it, it, we, it, I, I just, I can't believe people are, you know, promoting this. This is crazy. Yeah, this is, this is like decades of this type of uh, recommendation. You know, clinically, so um, I'm, I'm like, I'm just listening because I'm like a pig in shit right now because <laughs> I, I live this every day in the office with my patients. I mean, clinically, like you say, the end game is going to be the cancer or the heart disease or the diabetes or the Alzheimer's dementia. And it's sometimes so hard for people to make that long-term connection with the end game. And you know, it is a catastrophe of what's going on right now. 
Um, I will tell you 80%, if not more, of my patients coming through my door have some type of insulin-resistant issue and are at risk as they get older for having some of these things. Obviously, it's not going to be an automatic thing, but for example, if you're diabetic, we know you have an increased risk of cancer, and we can posit that these mechanisms are possibly one of the inciting factors. And so it's just crazy that I can show patients this dysregulation happening in real time, happening 20 years before they might have an endgame result of cancer or heart attack or dementia. And it's still just so hard to move the dial on some people. And even even to my fellow clinicians that I speak with, you know, I, I, it falls on deaf ears sometimes and my head explodes. It's just crazy. What what age range are your, your patients? Like, is there a, a that, you're, that you're talking about specifically that are a lot of them are insulin resistant or borderline pre-diabetic? So I see, I am a family medicine doctor, so I see a cradle to grave basically. But I, I mean, I'll get kids in their teens that are have elevated sugars. It's it's insane. But typically, yeah, no, I, I, I'm sure you see okay, it there probably ahead. in the hospital and clinical setting when you're doing your research. But yeah, I, mean, I do. Um, we we work with, uh, you know, we have children that are, you know, 12, 11, 12 that are diabetic. And right. it's they're obese, they're obese, they're diabetic. Uh, many of them are if they're not diabetic, they're insulin resistant. Uh, and it's a it's a family thing. You know, these families are we're we're looking at a very a minority population. Uh, a lot of these people are um, from you know they don't they don't make a lot of money. Uh, they're from a lower socioeconomic status, and uh, that tends to go hand in hand with not eating well. I'm um, not you know you're not you're not well educated in what you should eat, and you also can't afford to eat uh, well. So so we end up seeing a lot of these these patients, and uh, you know like right now I'm looking at blood cells. I'm I'm, I'm isolating white blood cells from a lot of these patients that are quite young. And yet I look at their, their DNA and I look at the damage to their DNA and, and they literally, it looks like an old person. Like it's, it's, it's really, really awful that, you know, this is a young person's body and I'm looking at the molecular level at their DNA. And I'm like, this looks like an old person's DNA in terms of how much damage is being done, you know? So yeah, we'll, we'll get patients in their twenties that have cardiac dysfunction. I mean, it's scary. I don't, I don't mean to laugh. It's just, it's, it's one of those nervous laughs. It's like, oh my gosh. Like, wh- what are we doing? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, we do, we well, do, we do a lot of testing and we'll look at all kinds of different things. I, we spoke with about it a little bit on Saturday at paleo, that after paleo effects, but I mean, it mm-hmm. is just the amount of potential disease and disease. It is mind boggling. And a majority of clinicians are just missing the boat. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'd like to somehow get clinicians to start listening to me because, you know, they're at least educated enough. You know, they've they've had a lot of the biochemistry. They have they've had you know they obviously have a lot of physiology and know a lot about the way the body works um, to an, a deeper level than even I do. But if they could listen to some of the, the the things that you know people like us are saying, where we're I'm looking at the mechanisms, that, you know, as to how these things are functioning or dysfunctioning. Um, and relating that back to something that's totally applicable in terms of what we can do, what kind of dietary uh, changes we can make, whether it's micronutrient intake or not, you know, activating the insulin response like so much, you know, what, what, regardless, and just have them to start to understand those mechanisms so they can start to implement them. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's physicians that, you know, the general population goes to when something's going wrong. And right. so if we could have these physicians understand you know, more about nutrition and more about the mechanisms of how the body is working and how you know, nutrition is tightly coupled to that, as opposed to, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the training physicians that I've you know, interacted with, it's, they really don't have a, an understanding of nutrition and, and the mechanisms by which micronutrients or insulin signaling and all these things are causing dysfunction. Uh, and t- instead, they they know about a certain pharmacological drug that can help make someone someone feel better, short term benefit. You know, I, I think that pharmacology is really uh, goes hand in hand with their training uh, these these days. So if we could somehow get nutrition into their curriculum, that would be a great step um, in the right direction. You know, 
I think part of that also is uh, due to the um, system approach that we have. Like you mentioned, we, we go to the doctor when we're sick. We don't go to the doctor when we're healthy. So we're not looking to our physicians as a, a preventative ally. We're looking at them as a stopgap measure. And, and on the flip right. side, you know, clinicians don't get paid for prevention. We get paid for treating sick people. And that's the other problem with the healthcare <laughs> system. So, but that's another rabbit oh, no. hole to go down for another you- two hours. <laughs> Are you saying there's an incentive there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, and if you think about it, it's like kind of, kind of perfect. I was talking about this. It's somewhat related. Um, one of the biggest certifications in the U S for fitness trainers is NASM, the, I don't know, North American sports medicine, whatever they are, but you know, it's okay. funny. They've created this training program. And since they don't understand how the nervous system works or activates, they actually start you off with their patented progression model. But the beginning of their progression actually guarantees that the person cannot progress and will most likely regress because they do all this instability training on unstable objects, which actually downregulates the nervous system, can cause, uh, you know, loss of strength, loss of nervous system activation, uh, slows down reaction time. So they're actually at the beginning stages of this program, they're making the people worse than where they started which means they can never progress. So they, you know, their trainer gets to work with them forever. And it, it's kind of the same thing. We're in this situation where, you know, some of these drugs, yes, they make you feel better in the moment, but they allow you to get sicker than you ever could have gotten before. So now you get yeah, to treat, yeah, now you get to treat them even longer and give them even more drugs to mask the new symptoms that they developed because they got so sick using the first drug that you put them on. I mean, it's, it's right. this perfect feedback mechanism for, you know, longevity in your career. Yeah, no, it, and it's actually a diminishing longevity of the uh, the patient. So, right. you know, it, it's like the long-term versus short-term effects. A lot of these pharmalo- pharmacological drugs have very robust short-term effects, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you guys, there's, antipsychotics is one that really um, comes to my mind because it's definitely has helped a lot of uh, people that have, you know, psychotic, uh, episodes, not have psychotic episodes mm-hmm, um, right. to some degree. But the problem is, is that, that no one st- had done a long-term study to look at the effects of these antipsychotics, you know, uh, 15 years down the line until very recently. And, it, you know, this publication came out where they had the law, la- the largest sample size. And they also did a 15 year follow-up where they looked at in a dose dependent manner, keep the, the effects of antipsychotics on the brain. And what they found is that in a dose-dependent manner, it causes brain atrophy. It literally kills your brain cells. <laughs> so it, you know, and it's like, it's horrible. It's, it's so, hor- here we have people giving their loved ones these antipsychotics. In some cases, they're giving it to young teenage boys, you mm-hmm. know, and it's literally stripping them of their lives and killing their brain cells, you know. So, so it's like, you know, why, why not look at an alternative way to, you know, figure out what, you know, nutrition wise, there's a lot of things that are important for brain function, omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D mm-hmm. regulates many different genes in the brain. Um, you know, so it's like, why not figure out what we need to get these people uh, optimally g- giving them their optimal nutrition and see what happens there and then go from there. You know, it's like, right. it, yeah. So getting nutrition into uh, disease prevention um, you know, not only, you know, at the level of preventing cancer, or preventing neurodegenerative disease, but literally just in, in, you know, cognitive function and behavior, you know, so I'm, I'm actually getting ready to publish a paper on um, a mechanism that I, I recently found that vitamin D regulates serotonin production, not only in your gut, but also in your brain. And uh, I recently published this paper in FASA where I found it, it increases the production of serotonin in your brain and how this is relevant for autism. Um, well, this other, the second paper that I'm getting ready to publish talks about uh, how important vitamin D is to make serotonin in your brain uh, in, from a behavioral standpoint, because serotonin regulates a wide variety of behaviors. Like we're talking about social behavior. Um, you know, you can, you can actually um, causally look at the effects of depleting someone of their serotonin by taking away tryptophan, mm-hmm. you know, which is an essential precursor to serotonin. And you can deplete their tryptophan by giving them branched-chain amino acids, which compete with tryptophan to get transported into the brain. And within five hours, these people, will, they'll be making about only 20% of the serotonin. You know, so it, it, you can actually study what, how, what behavioral effects happen. 
And what they found is that people become aggressive. Uh, they become very impulsive. Uh, their long-term thinking sort of shuts down. So they go for that short-term gratification. And it's like they've even compared depleting someone's tryptophan to side-by-side uh, -side with a methamphetamine user. And they literally, it does the same thing wow. that methamphetamine does. It's like short-term thinking takes over and long-term thinking is gone. They become impulsive. They got impulsive behavior, impulsive type of gambling, impulsive violence. Wow. I mean, it's just a mess. <laughs> So, you know, so, did, so did, um, were you able to tease out or look at um, MTHFR carrier status or not really? I haven't. I haven't uh, incorporated that, you know, but that's another really uh, important, you know, interaction between genetics and nutrition. You know, so the the MTFHR um, is obviously important for. Uh, folate in the and 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 mm -hmm. the way so I talked about how folate's important for thymine incorporation to DNA, but it also it, there's two pathways. That's one pathway. The other pathway is it's important for methylation, um, and right. the MTHFR does this. So it, it actually gets meth it it's, gets you know gets the methylation groups. It's I'm not going to explain this at the molecular level because it's just too complicated. Mm -hmm. But it essentially gets the methyl methyl groups from the from the folate. Um, and it, it does something that's really important. It remethylates homocysteine to methionine. So methionine, mm. every time you eat protein, methionine gets converted into homocysteine. And if you have a buildup of homocysteine, it's really bad for a yeah. variety of different reasons. Um, people probably are aware of this, the, the uh, arterial effects and also mm -hmm. the vascular effects of the brain. Um, but our body takes the methyl groups that we get from this B vitamin folate and remethylates the homocysteine back into methionine. And it's really a mechanism that we... Um, prevent our body from having too much homocysteine. But in addition to that, it also provides methyl groups for a variety of different epigenetic regulated, uh, regulatory factors and a variety of different other genes. So um, people that have a polymorphism in this, in this gene can't do this efficiently, and they end up um, having problems with obviously homocysteine buildup, but also with a variety of other uh, epigenetic factors or gene regulation um, that requires methyl groups um, to regulate those genes. So uh, yeah, but I mean, clearly there's going to be some, some, you know, effects, behavioral effects, cognitive function, you know, there's a, there's a ton of different genes that are regulated by, by methylation. We don't even know all of them yet. I mean, we're figuring out the, uh, the human epigenome, you know, still. So we've, we've, we've been able to map the human genome, but the epigenome, epigenome is a little more complicated. So yeah. Well, we, I was going to say we've actually hit our hour mark. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to try to convince you to stay on after the after uh, we're done with the show here for a second. Uh, we want to go down a couple more questions for you, but unfortunately the audience isn't gonna hear those. Um, so just stick around. But unfortunately we have to end this podcast. We're at the hour mark, and that's another episode of Body IO FM. Dr. Rhonda Patrick, thank you so much for being on this show. It gave me the opportunity to geek out at a level that I don't get to geek out at very often. Um, yeah, it was my pleasure, uh, Kiefer. And if people are interested in uh, my information, they can go to foundmyfitness.com. And that's where you can, you can, I also have a podcast where I, I essentially do short podcasts where I talk about, you know, some science behind some topic. Um, and that's foundmyfitness.com. You can sign up for my podcast and also my newsletter where I write articles that are referenced where I talk about all my, my health and nutrition information as well. And you had a specific, I found your videos uh, somewhere different than your website. They were all kind of listed there. Where, where was that? Uh, um, you know no, my website, foundmyfitness.com uh -huh. has, are has they all, all, all my there videos as well? there. Okay. They're all there. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you go to foundmyfitness.com, you'll see all the videos. It's, it's my YouTube channel. So okay. you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. And every time I have a new video out, you'll, you'll get an email uh, about it. Yeah. And we'll put, so, we'll put links to all your stuff in there. People really need to. I love your videos, so you know we're, we're, we want to showcase those and get people listening to more people like you uh, in, instead of the uh, I don't know if you saw I put a cartoon out on Twitter of Homer Simpson, <clears throat> and the title was ninety nine percent of all internet fitness gurus, and he's sitting there with a book that says advanced metabolism, and then the next frame is he's throwing it in the garbage. Then he's got a book that uh -huh. says nutrition for dummies, and then the next frame he's throwing that in the garbage. And then he's got the dictionary and the next frame he's looking up the word diet. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, That's I, awesome. yeah, I think that explains a lot of what goes on in the internet, which is unfortunate. And 
it, it's, it's hard to get above that noise. So thank you for screaming as loudly as you do on the internet. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> it, it helps everybody. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. So, um, body IOFM, we will catch you, I guess next week. been listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance. <laughs>